Welcome to the new Cat Chat, brought to you by Dr. Elsie's, privately owned by Dr. Elsie, a feline-only veterinarian whose personal mission is to formulate litters that keep cats using the litter box, which keeps them in their loving homes. I'm Tracy Hotchner, the author of The Cat Bible, Everything Your Cat Expects You to Know. My mission is to entertain, educate, and inspire cat lovers like you to give their kitty cats the best possible life in nutrition, affection, and environmental enrichment by interviewing cat authors and experts, some old favorites, some new conversations. Dr. Elsie is also the founding and continuing sponsor of my Cat Film Festival, short films from around the world that celebrate the kitty cat, which will be back in theaters as soon as they reopen. Meantime, thanks to Dr. Elsie's, you can now see streaming versions of the Cat Film Festival for free on Amazon Prime and Tubi TV. This show is also brought to you by Meet Me, where they make organic, humane, raw frozen foods and dehydrated treats on their own rural farm in Virginia. The turkey, chicken, rabbit, and beef are certified organic and humanely raised and processed right on their property. So they control safety and health for animals on their farm and at your home, which is why they say, from farm to bowl. I have the pleasure of meeting and introducing to all of you Dr. Audrey Cook. She's quite an extraordinary veterinarian, and I learned about her through VMX, which is an amazing multi-day gathering in Orlando for veterinarians and vet techs, um, behavior consultants, and this year it was semi-remote, and Dr. Cook was there. She's the professor of small animal internal medicine and chief of the internal medicine service at Texas A&M University. That's a really big title, folks. Internal medicine veterinarians have many more years of training, and they're, I always call them the detectives of the veterinary field. But she also is board certified through the American Board of Feline Practitioners, so kitty cats are something she cares a lot about. And guess what? She went to the University of Edinburgh, like our wonderful local Dr. Barry happens to have done, and is one of the extremely rare people to be certified both in Europe and the United States. So, Dr. Audrey, thank you for giving us some of your time, and congratulations on a lifetime of pretty impressive achievements. Oh, thank you, Tracy. You know, it's uh, it's my pleasure to be here, and. Um, we Brits tend to have a lot of letters after our name, but I feel myself to be blessed and privileged to have been a part of this amazing profession and to have spent 30 years helping folks and helping their animals. And, and, and you clearly have been doing that. Just a, a quick aside, I remember once interviewing a veterinarian who was certified in, in England or maybe Scotland, and you don't call yourselves doctor. Is that right? Um, we didn't used to. So um, in the UK, I would be Miss. Although I think it probably is about five or six years ago, they changed the regulations. And if you wanted to adopt the title doctor as a veterinarian in the UK now that you can. Um, and I would say probably about 50% of uh, British vets I know of have adopted the doctor title. I do think it's fair because, yes, we go to vet school in the UK straight from high school, but so do our MD oh, colleagues. Oh, interesting. And, um, Yes, and so the training for the, the veterinarians and the MDs is very, very similar. The MDs pop out and call themselves doctors, and the vets traditionally popped out and, and were stuck with Mr., Mrs., or Miss. And so I can see why the argument was made. To, to <laughs> well, recognize I always thought it was rude. I didn't think you had to defend it. I thought that they should defend being so rude as to call somebody with <laughs> dozens of years of training because all these other certifications you have are also very, very time um intensive and, and show a lifetime of dedication. 
what caught my attention amongst all the other amazing people that were doing presentations at VMX, and I wanted very much to be there in person. I'm just not ready to have my teeth punched out on an airplane at the moment. I, I, don't, I don't mean to joke about it, but I do think that somehow psychotic people have been on airplanes. But next year, I will definitely be there, and I hope you come back and present again. But your presentation was about feline diabetes and different ways of treating it. And I thought, ah, I'm always on the feline di diabetes train like, yes, but you shouldn't be feeding carbs in the first place. And these are obligate carnivores. And isn't that what causes diabetes? And full disclosure, I did write to you before asking if you'd be so kind as to come on the show to tell you that that is the position I've always taken. I have no letters after my name. I'm still just Ms. forever, um, but I have immersed myself in the topic of feline diabetes. I've sort of seen it as a man-made disease, and you were very graciously said, well, I'm certainly happy to acknowledge that point of view, but I have other thoughts about nutrition and diabetes, since you, in fact, have many letters after your name and have spent a lifetime trying to deal with and treat and cure feline diabetes. Can you talk a little bit first from the nutrition aspect I do think without a doubt um, nutrition plays an enormous role in how we treat our feline diabetics. And what's interesting with over 30 years of, of being a veterinarian, I'm old enough to have been through some of the, the paradigms that come and go. And so I can remember during my, my medicine residency, which I did at University of California at Davis, which is, was at the time one of the premier centers for veterinary endocrinology, the standard of care, so this is back in the, back in the 90s, right. where you diagnosed a cat with being a diabetic, we would, um, we would slap the hand of the owner for having that cat on canned food or something similar, um, over-the-counter canned food, and right. we would send them home with a, usually a large bag of dry, high-fiber diet. That was the paradigm. We, under, we understood that fiber had some positive benefits in, in diabetics, and we kind of latched very tightly onto the idea that our feline diabetic patients should be on high-fiber diets. And it's, it's painful to reflect on that yes. because it was in many ways the exactly dumbest um, and most unhelpful <laughs> thing we could have done. We just didn't know what we didn't know. And that's I think right. that's the thing about medicine that fascinates me is we, we discover something and we stand on it very firmly but we often have no idea what piece of amazing information lies around the corner. And so I've seen this huge shift from these poor cats being put on these often dry and certainly high-carbohydrate diets for diabetes, which was completely not the right thing to do, to now this whole new understanding that I completely concur with you. The, the diet a cat is designed to eat is essentially a carbohydrate-free diet. They're Correct. supposed to be eating crickets and locusts and, and birds and mice, yes. they are not supposed to be eating the kind of foods that we've been feeding them for the last 30, 40 years. And so I do think when I'm talking about feline diabetes, we always have to talk about diet. And, and, it, and it's still one of those things where new information is emerging. And so you can't, you can't slap the table and say, we know this with 100% certainty. But we do understand that if we feed a cat in a way that is much more aligned with what Mother Nature planned for the cat, how it deals with those calories is much more physiologically appropriate. And I would love to talk for an hour on this subject, but one of the things that, that we've understood recently is these amazing hormones that are produced by the gastrointestinal tract called the incretins. And they were not hormones that were understood when I was a vet student. They were not hormones that were understood when I was a resident, but these are hormones that have been understood over the last probably 15 or 20 years. And you can think about these hormones as being early warning messages. And so when we eat something, that food comes into our gastrointestinal system, and the cells that release the incretins are cells that line the bowel, and I think of them as teeny tiny 
tasters. They are almost like a taste bud. And so they will sample what I have eaten for lunch. Before those calories are digested and before those, those nutrients enter my bloodstream, they will figure out what I've eaten. And they will say, gosh, she had a very high carbohydrate lunch or she had a very high protein lunch or she had a, a lunch that's like loaded with, with sugars. Mm-hmm. And they will actually send messages to the pancreas to say, this is what she ate, so, so prepare to do whatever. <laughs> they'll send messages to the brain to say, tell wow. her to stop eating, she's had enough. And they'll send wow. messages to the liver to say calories are coming. And, and what we know now is the food triggers for people are very different from the food triggers for cats. And, and looking at how cats respond to carbohydrates versus how they respond to proteins and fats, that tells us cats are not designed to be having diets that are full of carbohydrates. They don't respond to them like people do. We are designed to eat carbs. That's right. Cats really are not. Their, their actual fundamental physiology tells us they weren't expecting carbohydrates to arrive. And so I do think when we have cats that live their lives on, on high-carbohydrate diets that are often, therefore, relatively deficient in protein, we cause all kinds of problems by doing that. And diabetes is it's not the only issue, but it's, it's a major player. Well, I, I must say, I, I feel so gratified and relieved. Thank God. Everything I've been telling people for the last 15 years on the air and in blogs um, is correct. That I mean, I've gone further, and I call it kitty crack and say that cats get hooked on something that is completely unnatural to them. So they're munching and grazing all day as if they were a herd animal out in a, the prairie, which isn't natural for their digestive system either, on this this ingredient that is not how the desert animal's gut was was ever intended to digest it. But the way you describe it is so wonderful. And I think really important for all of us to have respect and empathy and appreciation for the work done, whether it's at UC Davis or at Penn or at Tufts or or University of Edinburgh, the places where you've been studying this and you are trying to keep diseases from happening or getting worse. And we're, we're just simple little creatures. You know, we don't have, our, our brains aren't computers, so we see what we think is a solution or how a problem happened. And we have to learn from our own mistakes. And of course, the animals somehow in the process suffer. These incretins are fascinating because people, completely different digestive system, as the kitty has a completely different digestive system from dogs, of course. I'm wondering, we hear about people who will say, God, I eat a sandwich. Of course, they've really probably eaten four sandwiches, but they say a sandwich and it goes right on my hips and they pat their hips. Is it because something in, and I know you weren't studying human digestion, but still there must be similarities. Something in their GI tract is telling the pancreas or the liver or the kidneys to do something different with their sandwich than mine? Well, boy, that is a, that is a great way of thinking, man. I do think we've got um, similarities person to person about our basic hormone responses to the, to the food groups that we take in. What, what complicates things, and now we understand this a bunch more, is the bacteria in your bowel, so your microbiome, right. actually do a lot of digesting for you. And so, so, so you take the calories in, and then you've got your, your physiological reactions to those calories that are mediated by hormones like the incretins and then how well your pancreas behaves. But then you've also got what happens to, the, to those calories through the bacterial action before any of those nutrients enter your bloodstream. There's been some amazing work that's shown that you can have um, mice that naturally are thin and mice that naturally are fat. And if you transfer the microbiome, so the bacteria in the bowel from the skinny mice to the fat mice, the fat mice get thin. Wow. And, 
Yes. And so, I mean, to me, that's one of those studies that makes you just think, my goodness, these, yes. these forces that work upon our body yes. are so much more complex than we could have ever believed was, was, was possible. And so that you definitely have the microbiome playing a role. And if you look at um, type 2 diabetes in people, which does have very strong similarities to type 2 diabetes in cats, yes. type 2 diabetic humans have a different microbiome to non-diabetic humans. How much of that is what you've eaten has fed a certain microbiome, or is this the microbiome you were fated to have by your genetics and your environment as a child? We often don't know what drives how a person has this species of, of populations in their bowel versus somebody else has something different. So it's hard to say cause and effect, but they're definitely distinctly different, and that, that potentially plays a role as well. It's just, it is so much more complicated than we all thought, but I do think the idea both for cats I, I can talk reliably about cats. People is more my own hypotheses. Right. The more we can eat food that is as close to the earth and nature as possible, most likely that is going to be supporting a system that is able to operate as optimally as it was once designed. And so I think for cats, if I could open my back door and my cat could go out and catch herself every day, a few little birds yes. or mice yes. or crickets, and she mm -hmm. could do that safely and didn't decimate the birds and right. didn't pick up infection and didn't get snatched by a coyote or run over by a car. Correct. If I could let her do that, I think that would optimize her health. And so when I'm feeding my own personal pet, I, I try to be as, as thoughtful as I can, recognizing the, the realities of I have an indoor cat. I have limited time to, um, to prepare her meals. You know, you've got to recognize that all of us who, who are caring for our cats are trying to, to weigh the convenience factor and the expense factor and the what can I realistically right. do with those understandings of I'd like her to eat as close to Mother Nature intended as I possibly could. I think that you've put that so eloquently because all those factors do come into it and finance is part of it. I've had people call in and write in over the years that are living on a very fixed income, but they say, oh, if I should be feeding the, the best quality in a can that I can, I will do without something else. And I don't say to them, oh, no, no, keep on feeding that highly colored, highly between you and me, toxic thing in a jug, jiggly jug in the supermarket because in the end that cat's going to live longer and more healthfully and cost that person less in heartache and, and vet bill problems, probably. So when you talk at, at a VMX, you talk at these associations where the veterinarians not only don't have the time or the energy to scold people if they wanted to, for feeding uh, highly, highly processed carbohydrate diets. And I understand why they don't want to. It isn't necessarily in their training, although the younger group of veterinarians might be taught that. I don't even know. I know the, the older generation definitely was told dry food. Then how do you talk to veterinarians about their population getting sick, their population of cat clients getting sick, and how do they not just say, please feed the highest quality, least processed uh, meat food you can? That doesn't seem to be the kind of party line in the veterinary world. And yet veterinarians like yourself who've been studying it and watching this know that to be best. Does it frustrate you or do you feel you've well, made some inroads? I think we are making huge inroads. I think, I think a lot of it is I think like anything where if somebody can tell you something and they can put it in context and they can show you the whole big picture and the advantages. And so, so I gave a talk at BMX about, about diabetic remission, which is this idea that when we've diagnosed a cat as being a diabetic, 
do we see if we can actually manage to reverse the diabetes? And so as part of that talk, I always take about 15 minutes of my precious 50 talking about the journey that makes a cat become a diabetic. Because I think if you understand yes. what pathway this cat was on to end up in this place where nobody wants their cat to end up, then I think it's easier for a vet to say, I see this and I understand it and I can contextualize it. And diet is a huge part of that talk that I give. Now I see how what well, I can turn around and try and encourage the cat to reverse this journey it's taken and put itself back to no longer needing insulin injections. A cat, once it's been a diabetic, to my mind, is always actually a diabetic, even if you get it off That's of insulin. Right. Mm-hmm. But living with it as an owner, if you talk to an owner and you say, would you like your cat to be on a shot twice a day, given ideally it's a very, very defined time, and then you're happy to go to work and worry about hypoglycemia or right. what your cat doesn't need, right. or would you rather have a cat that we've managed to reverse this journey, Owners are delighted at the idea of trying to, to shoot for a mission. And I think, I think that, that for me is the key to when I'm, I'm trying to share a new idea and a new approach with vets is try and put it in the context of this is how the cat got here. And also as part of that discussion of the journey, I'm always hoping that next time the vet sees a cat that isn't diabetic but is on the journey, that really for me is the time to say, yes. Mr. Smith, you're in for a wellness visit and kudos for bringing your cat in for a wellness visit because we right. do not see enough cats for wellness. That's right. You know, I, I'm not happy about not just your cat's weight because she's carrying a pound or two extra, but her muscle condition score isn't good. You see her legs are skinny. She's got a fat jungle pouch. Right. She's got a wobbly tummy, but she's yes. got skinny legs. Let's really talk about what we're feeding her as long as, and how much we're feeding her. And let's think about how she lives her life and spends her days because when I think about the journey to diabetes, the best analogy I heard was, and I am not a card player, but when you're playing something <laughs> like poker, you're trying to get your royal flush, say. You want your, your five specific cards. When I think about a cat becoming a diabetic, I always think in terms of we are born with a couple of cards in our hand. And if you're unlucky, a couple of those That's cards right. might be cards that set you up to be a diabetic. Yes. If you, if you stay lean and skinny and active, you're fine. You don't pick up any more cards. But if well you're said. a cat who is born with a couple of cards, bad genetics, unlucky, and then you're very sedentary. Oh, you got another card. And then you're allowed to get fat because you're on a, a, a carbohydrate diet that doesn't ever satisfy, so you keep going that's back. That's right. That's another card. And then you lose muscle mass because a diet that's high in carbs is automatically low in protein, and so you haven't got muscle, which is a great sink for glucose. That is you picking the final card you needed from the pack, and you're going to become a diabetic. And so each time I talk about the journey to diabetes, I stress the idea about the preclinical diabetic cat, which is the cat we see whose blood sugar is knocking on the edge of the reference range and the cat's holding at least four of the five cards he needs. And that cat is, is one piece of bad luck away from becoming a diabetic. That really, I think, is the time to, to, to not just shrug and say, he's all right, but to say, this is very serious. And right. to sit down with the owner and, and, and turn that cat around and, and encourage him to, to reverse his steps. And so I think each time we talk about it, it helps. But I think, I think you're right in the sense that some of the dogma that we're taught at vet school, I can remember being taught dry diets are better for their teeth. Yes, I know. Such nonsense. Yeah, that, that was absolutely nonsense. There's, there's, no, there's no reason to say that at all. And, but it, it's difficult to unlearn things. That's things right. that you've struggled to learn are hard to unlearn. But the more discussion we have and the more context we give it and the more we talk about it from a perspective that resonates with the, the busy general practitioner on a busy Saturday That's morning... Right. Mm-hmm. trying to convince that person to just take three minutes with this owner to talk about diet. 
I think I think that's really where the power lies. You've you've said it so wonderfully, and and the the myth also about cleaning teeth. I I actually went to Davis, if you can imagine, years ago when Nordic Naturals was a sponsor. I said, I, I really, I'm so frustrated. I want to reach vets when they're young, like first-year vet students. So they paid my way to go to, to UC Davis. We did a lunch and learn. So we rushed to Costco and got a big sandwich platter. Um, and we showed up, and all these um, very well-meaning vet students, and I saw the hallway lined. so You could barely get down it. It was a fire hazard with free bags of dog and cat food, big bags for all the students from all the companies. It used to just be Hills, but it was all the companies. And they a lot of them had a free, very fancy backpack from Hills Science Diet. Actually, a, a wonderful company that makes some good products, but, but maybe not as, as the everyday food for an animal. And to try and talk to them about, you know, that this is not the best thing for a cat and that I brought a bag of Fritos. And I said, you know, if a person's dentist said, you know, the best thing to do between now and the next session is eat Fritos every day, (laughs) it's exactly the same thing. I mean, it's sprayed with oils and there's chemicals in there and it's total carb and how your saliva acts with all that, you know, uh, high, high glycemic carbs in your mouth. I said, it's illogical. And the idea that crunching on something, which, mind you, isn't even at the gum line, right? It's it's the, 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 mm-hmm. the cutting surface. Dogs, of course, many of them don't even chew. They just inhale. It's, it's so counterintuitive to logic, to intelligence, to knowing, you know, what an animal's mouth looks like and what teeth, how teeth function. But it, it's funny, you, you, to this day, if you say to somebody, Please just do me one favor. For two weeks, just take your cat off kitty crack. Your cat's hooked on it. I'll tell you ways to get him, you know, cold turkey, literally with pieces of turkey, but then feed it, you know, a properly balanced wet diet. You'll see a change in your cat. And they say, but what about his teeth? I said, that's why you have a dental exam and that's why your animals need a dental cleaning. How do you expect to go through your whole life without having your teeth cleaned? And people have this light bulb go off. Oh, yeah. Because isn't it true that when your cat in the wild is eating that locust or, or, or mouse or bird, that all of their, the roughage of their little legs and feathers and fur is probably part of what does, in fact, clean the cat's teeth and gums? Well, I do think that what they choose to eat is going to have an impact on the bacteria that live in their mouths, and, and that plays a huge role in plaque and calculus. And so, I mean, it's, it's an interesting question. I've not seen enough kind of feralish cats to have a sense for how they look dental-wise at, say, three or four years old. But um, and it, it is difficult. It is difficult because we're always trying to weigh up the, the, the positives of kind of controlling their environment and controlling everything about, about how they live their lives versus pulling them away from their more natural right. circumstances. Yeah. And, you know, you never want to be unrealistic about the hazards that exist for a cat who's living outside because they can be considerable. But I do think... I think what you're saying about we need to be much more thoughtful about what we're feeding our cats is very true. And I think, I think the sooner we can get that message out and have owners be um, better educated as far as what options they've got and recognize that just because something is sold in the grocery store, just like for humans, doesn't mean it's a good choice. Um, I think those are, those are really important messages to get out. And, and it's a great conversation for, for cat owners to have with their vet and um, see how your vet feels about discussing nutrition and what advice do they have and, and how do they approach that issue. And if, they, if they're not interested in nutritional discussions, then you know, self-educate or, or, or exactly. make a relationship with a veterinarian who, who is more interested in nutrition. Because I think, 
I think that the, the connection between what we eat and how we feel and how our health goes is, is becoming more and more apparent all the time. Well, you've said it really well. We've run out of time, but I will say to anybody, if, if your vet doesn't want to discuss it, say, gee, the next time you go to a vet conference, I hope you can take Dr. Audrey Cook's presentation <laughs> because I think you'll really enjoy it. And I'd love you to come back with some different way of thinking. Thank you so much, um, Dr. Audrey Cook, who is truly a doctor, for all that you're doing and continue to do to help animals live a better life, especially cats, via their, their vets and via their, their caretakers. Thank you so much for spending time with us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Cat Chat. I hope this conversation has deepened your understanding and appreciation of cats everywhere. It's been brought to you by Dr. Elsie's, which created their own clean protein foods inspired by the protein levels found in a cat's natural prey. I recommend that wet food should always be your cat's primary diet, but clean protein also comes as a dry food, the first one I would recommend if you want to feed dry, even as part of your cat's diet. This show is also supported by cat water, specially formulated to appeal to cats, chlorine-free, ozonated, and lightly acidic, to encourage them to drink more to promote urinary tract health and the ideal pH.